0: This is the Chefs Without Restaurants podcast with your hosts, Chris Speer and Andrew Wilkinson. Each week, we'll be speaking with food entrepreneurs and people in the culinary industry. If you're interested in learning more about our organization dedicated to helping people build and grow their food businesses, look us up on the web at chefswithoutrestaurants.com and, .org, and on Facebook and Instagram at chefswithoutrestaurants. Now,
1: enjoy the show.
0: This is episode 26 of the Chefs Without Restaurants podcast. How's everyone doing? This is Chris, and today we have an interesting episode for you. A few weeks ago, I talked to Jason Luttrell and was on his podcast, The Luttrell Show. So Jason's given me permission to repost the podcast here for all of my listeners. Jason is a beverage, events, operations, and hospitality consultant, Funny story. As I was getting into cocktails a decade ago, Jason used to bartend at the bar Death & Co. in New York City, and Jason was actually uh, the one making my cocktails that evening. So the very first cocktail I ever had in New York City was made by Jason. And through social media, we have kept in contact over the years So I saw him up at the Star Chefs Congress in October, and we struck up a conversation and have kind of carried that offline since then. So I was very happy when he reached out to me and asked if I want to be on his podcast and kind of talk about what I do through Perfect Little Bites and Chefs Without Restaurants and the future of in-home dining, in-home bartending, and such— So on another note, today is March 17th, uh, St. Patrick's Day. And I'm sure everyone's aware that we are in the middle of a global pandemic, the COVID-19 flu virus that's taking over the world. So a lot has been going on and has impacted everyone and everything. So I'm not sure what the podcast is going to look like for the next couple weeks or months. So that's one of the reasons I'm dropping this podcast here because Andrew and I have not been recording. Uh, I do have a couple shows already recorded and I need to edit them. So just bear with us over the next couple weeks and I'm going to be dropping a mini episode probably soon to kind of talk a little more about the whole situation, how it's impacting people and seeing what we can do. But I hope you enjoyed this episode. I think we had a great conversation. Please check out the show notes to learn more about Jason and see what he's doing. And as always, thanks for the support and have a great week.
1: Thank you for checking out the Latrell Show, building businesses, bars, and brands. My name is Jason Luttrell, and I'm so excited to have Chef Chris Spear from Perfect Little Bites out of Maryland, um, and he also runs an organization and a podcast called Chefs Without Restaurants. So Chef, thank you so much for uh, coming on my show, and I have so many questions for you. Let's get started. You do something that I think is very future-facing, and I think it's um, something that we're Going to see a lot more of as the gig economy and the uh, the convenience economy progress, and I think that we're going to see a lot more in home dining. So, uh, before we get started, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and how you got started as a business?
0: Sure. So, uh, I'm a chef, and I've been in the food service industry since 1992, when I was 16, working in. Um, I started in fast food, but you know, I always wanted to be in food. It's all I ever wanted to do. I have no idea what I'd do if I wasn't working in food. So for me, my career path was start working in kitchens in high school, go to culinary school, and then get out and start cooking. And I've literally not worked a job that wasn't a culinary job.
1: And so, and you went to Johnson and Wales, right? Yes. I did a four-year bachelor's program there. In culinary?
0: Yes, all four years. But you get a lot of uh, business the last two years kind of focus more towards uh, opening your own place
1: led you on the path of, of independence where you don't have a brick and mortar where you're um, literally creating dining experiences like you would see in a restaurant in people's homes. How did what where did that pivot come from?
0: Yeah, I think a lot of it was, um, you know, kind of wanting to own my own restaurant without all the baggage that comes along with it. I think uh, financially, I didn't have the money. I didn't want to take on investors. And then just all that stuff of not being flexible, being there all the time, working until two in the morning, um, trusting your business to other people. And I uh, was most recently working for Sedexo in contract food, which gives you a much better work-life balance. Um, Fast forward now, I have seven-year-old twins, um, but I even started thinking about this before I had kids, just what was my quality of life? How much time could I spend with my wife? How much time could I spend doing what I wanted to do? And I didn't see that happening with owning a restaurant. So I was pretty happy in the contract food world, but then just something started um, growing inside me that I want to do my own thing. So I took the Personal Chefs Association two-day class on being a personal chef. Um, And that was really geared towards doing the week's worth of meals in people's homes. But it gave me a lot of great information on the logistics of cooking in other people's homes and what you needed for liability insurance and all kinds of things like that. So then I wanted to kind of just look at the idea of what if I brought the restaurant experience to you? I think there's a number of reasons why... People don't or can't go out. Uh, just looking at the D.C. market around here, you know, you go into D.C., you're going to drop like any big city, you know, 30, 40 dollars for parking. The, the hot restaurants are super challenging to get a reservation at. If you have kids, you have to deal with a babysitter. And now everyone's got some kind of special diet. So if I could take all that off the table, you've come home from work. You don't have to drive back into the city, pay for parking. You can have your kids at home while I'm there cooking for you. Uh, and because it's a personalized experience, I can accommodate any diet restrictions. And yeah, that's that's kind of what I wanted to do and be able to cook the food that I wanted to cook um, kind of on my own terms. I mean,
1: the food that you want to cook. I, I mean, I'm sure that's there's a bit of flexibility in that. I mean, you, uh, presumably you have to be a bit of a chameleon to, um, to adapt to kind of the customer's wants and desires and needs. And uh, I mean, how do you uh, can you cook anything? Yeah, yeah
0: within reason. So the, the one thing that I get a lot of that I don't do is sushi because I just think that's a totally specialized art. Um, but, you know, outside that, I've always loved uh, foods from a variety of places. So I lean towards a lot of contemporary and mid-Atlantic southern foods. Think kind of like shrimp and grits. But I'm also a New Englander, so I do some New England food. I have dishes like Indian pudding on my menu, Uh, But I love foods from Mexico and Spain and Thailand and the Middle East. So bringing that into my food and then how do you make something that's your own? So I'll do maybe a pimento cheese, you know, which is usually... cheddar cheese and like pimentos but i'll use a smoked gouda and i like to do like a cherry bomb pepper relish in there for the the pepper component so it's something that gives you a reference point you're a little familiar with but it's not something that everyone else is serving if that makes sense
1: sure um what do you do with uh, i mean i'm gonna ask you in a little bit about like kind of the life cycle of an event but what do you do for long lead stuff like um you know sous vide cooking or like pressure cooking or uh, like confit or whatever
0: yeah yeah Yeah. So I don't do any of that long stuff because I'm using the customer's home for um, my kitchen primarily. You know, I don't have a commercial kitchen, which is great because then I don't have the expense of that. Um, My church does have a licensed commercial kitchen. So if I needed to get in there and use that, I can. But for the most part, um, so I'm doing quick stuff. I'm not doing like a 72 hour short rib or something like that. Um, I'm pretty traditional in that sense. I still think that you can throw a ribeye steak in a cast iron pan and throw in the oven and, you know, have it come out beautiful.
1: So you got out of school um, and then you decided you went straight into um, into private dining, in-home dining and started your own business is that right
0: no no so uh oh, I'm, I'm, sorry, I'm sorry I'm sorry yeah, I'm sorry yeah, yeah, about yeah. the whole
1: Sedexo part
0: yeah well and that was even recently like I spent the better part of my career actually working in contract food for companies like Compass and Sedexo I've worked in retirement communities uh I was the catering director of a hospital so you know kind of the big secret that I never told anyone for so long was that I literally had never worked in a restaurant like if you don't count fast food I've never in my life worked in a restaurant, um, and I think people are super surprised that I've been in the food industry for 27 years now. And my only restaurant experience is like working at Burger
1: King when I was 16. Um, this is what I wish people would understand: is that the the restaurant bar industries are extremely multifaceted. I mean, there's there's so many different things that you can do with a degree or with with whatever skills and experience you have. Uh, I think that uh, I think it's wonderful what you're doing because, again, I think like. What the next thing is, I think, is going to be in-home experiences. Um, how have you seen? You started your business in 2010. How have you seen things change since you started your business?
0: It's growing exponentially. Um, you know, for me, the biggest challenge is I felt like while there were people doing this, it, it wasn't the norm, and it still really isn't. And for me, explaining what I have to do, like how do people even find you? Because I I do like minimum of two and max of twenty. So if people want a wedding catered, that's not me. But if they want a week's worth of meals, that's not me. And I realized I really needed to start advertising that my competitors were restaurants and not caterers, that, you know, people still say, well, you know, if I have an event coming up, I'll think of you. I said, like, you don't need an event. If you were going to go out on Friday night and go downtown to a restaurant, just hire me to come and do it in your home instead. Like it doesn't even need to be a birthday or an anniversary. Just instead of going out to a restaurant and spending that money, hire me and I'll come in and give you that experience in your home. I bring silverware. I set your table. I have linen napkins. I bring all my own china. I bring the pots and pans. There's no cleanup. You know, if you want to hang out in the kitchen, like it's a chef's table and talk to me the whole time. Cool. I'm going to serve you a seated plated meal and then I'll take all the dirty stuff home with me. So but people don't even know how to look for that. Like people rarely go on the Internet and Google like in-home restaurant experience. So I'm kind of working a lot on just kind of educating people on that's what I do.
1: So you also have a podcast called um, Chefs Without Kitchens, which is wonderful. It's culturally relevant. It's very com- compelling content that you're putting out there. And it is a punishing schedule. Oh, my God. How many podcasts are you putting out?
0: So it's called Chefs Without Restaurants. And we we're ideally, I'm um, doing one long-form podcast a week. And now we're kind of trying to look at what we do for backfill, whether it's like little snippet stuff. Sometimes when we have guests in, we'll have a mini episode that we do, like one was – um, buying gifts, you know, kitchen related gifts for people for the holidays. One coming up is going to be about like Instagram marketing. Um, but so essentially we're releasing one a week, but sometimes we're recording three, like we went to Baltimore last week and we spent about 10 hours between travel and everything. And we banged out three, like hour and a half episodes in one day.
1: Oh, wow. (laughs) I mean, there's an economy of scale if you're just, you know, in the same place and you say, Hey, Monday
0: is my recording. Like I just clear my schedule unless a big event comes in. You know, I'm not usually busy on Mondays anyway. So we've just turned Monday into podcasting day. And as long as we're not going to do anything else, let's just kind of get a bunch in the can. And then that gives us a little leeway in case we have a week where we can't do it.
1: How do you market your business aside from the podcast? I mean, podcasts are are wonderful. I mean, they're great for SEO. They're great for like, you know, spinning content and, you know, quoting people and, and doing all these wonderful things. But what else are you doing aside from this, aside from your prolific podcast schedule?
0: Yeah, I mean, social media and, you know, I was an early adopter. So a lot of people ask, you know, how do you grow an audience? I was like, well, I got online at like 2007, 2008 and started following people and engaging people back when people were real influencers, not like paid to take pictures of whatever. But, you know, I would post a dish on Twitter and then like Rene Redzepi follows me on Twitter. Right. And he would repost that to his, I don't know, bazillion people who follow him. And then, you know, you maybe get a local or two person following you. And it's just the very long tail of engaging with people on social media. And, you know, now having an Instagram page and trying to post stuff regularly, hashtag appropriately, e-stock potential customers on social media. Um,
1: Yeah. it's a lot of work. It's a lot of work acquiring customers for sure. Yeah.
0: And you know, my website set up like a food blog and I did that. I launched it 10 years ago when I launched my business. So when you talk SEO, I mean, if you type like personal chef Maryland in there, I'm like first page rank without having to pay for anything just because the longevity of that. And then I have backlinks to magazines I've been in like garden and gun and, um, Things like that. I've been actually I have three cocktails, I think, in Imbibe magazine. Um, I'm actually known more for my cocktails in the published world. Like I have a cocktail in Garden and Gun, three were in Imbibe, and um, a mention was in Oxford American in an article that John T. Edge wrote. Um, So like really good for SEO stuff.
1: Yeah, like back, like if if you don't know what SEO is, search engine optimization, it's a way that your website gets relevant. So if somebody searches for your keywords, like, for instance, Personal Chef Maryland, um, the reason Chef Chris gets uh, ranked really highly is because, one, he's been in the game for a long time. um, And two, because there's a lot of back, like relevant backlinks from high authority domains means that that Garden and Gun has referenced his website and um, that makes his site more relevant. Uh, Is that a good explanation of that?
0: Yeah, definitely.
1: Um, so it's one of those things. Like, if you have your if you have a business, and um, you know, one of the first things I would say is like, one, get the domain name, two, put up a website really quickly, and start thinking about exactly what people are searching to find you. Um, that's a really that's a, the very basic ma- marketing tactic. Some people hack it. Some people spend money like getting um, you know ghost articles written about their websites and stuff like that. It's all a waste of money. Just it's all about being relevant and being important. What do you think the future of food on demand? Uh, in urban areas is going to be like, and, and how do you fit into that whole picture? Yeah, I mean, I so I'm talking about, like, I'm talking about specifically like Grubhub, like you know, like I, I feel like people are going to be eschewing things like um, restaurants in in-person dining experiences, and then moving towards things like what you're doing.
0: Definitely, I mean, I think um, time is what everyone's trying to figure out: how do they get more time? How do they squeeze more into their day? And how do they cut out the stuff? And I think that's why you're seeing the rise of you know, not only like Grubhubs, but, you know, Amazon Prime, you know, I order like batteries off of Amazon Prime, you know, just because uh, it'll be here tomorrow. Uh, So I think that that you're going to see the continuation of that. And then I'm really interested in looking at these ghost kitchens, which are, you know, essentially like, kitchens and industrial warehouses that don't have a storefront where basically you're just producing food and then sending it out delivery. And you could have a commissary kitchen with a number of different chefs and business models in there and just have like a, a home delivery based business where you don't even have to have customers come in with no storefront.
1: Right. Because people, a lot of people, especially when there's opening restaurants, they think like, oh, I'm going to create this beautiful experience and I'm going to d- deliver this wonderful food and these beautiful cocktails and it's going to be the best in the world. Uh, but what oftentimes people don't think about is the 30% of floor space that they need to generate revenue and like the other 70% or 60% that is costing money. And um, and it's Grubhub and Seamless and, and Uber Eats and all these things. They don't care about that. They, they're, you're, they're taking 20, 30% to market your business for you. And that is oftentimes the entire margin of a brick and mortar. And so you've kind of sidestepped all that. Um, I mean, do you have a truck? Do you have like, how do you bring, what kind of equipment do you bring to your events? My minivan.
0: Um, no, I have very little overhead. I mean, I I am very profitable because I operate lean. Um, yeah, I mean, I just have my minivan that we use for the family. And on work days, I use that to throw my stuff. I went to Ikea and I have probably 20 giant clear bins and everything is organized for China and silverware and all that stuff. And I have a meticulous polls list for every event. And when, uh, you know, a couple of days before I print that off and just start writing what I need to pull. So I used to, I've worked a number of years in off-premise catering as well. So having a background in high volume off-premise catering really helps you. And then when you scale down to like two to 20 people, it's almost a no brainer for me.
1: And, and cost wise for them, is it is it comparable to um, a dining experience like in, in a nice, nice restaurant?
0: Yeah. So my price point starts at about a hundred dollars a person. And that's just where I wanted to be. I feel like the middle of everything is going to get squeezed out and you're either going to be low cost, very fast, minimal experience, or you're going to be high end, expensive, lush. So I I do think that there's going to be this thing where it's like, people are either going to do the in-home delivery, they don't care about the experience, it's cheap and delicious, or they're going to spend a lot of money on high end dining. That's kind of my feeling. And with my business model, I just couldn't get into seeing a profitable model where I was charging $30 for dinners or whatever. So, you know, I have people who pay up to $200 ahead for dinner. So I go do a dinner for t- 10 people at $200, that's $2,000. And if I run like a 20% food cost, then my only other cost for the actual event is gas, and then there's my time. And then the rest of my expenses are pretty much just marketing because I have all my own capital uh, expenditures taken care of.
1: What about, uh, compliance stuff? Uh, do you, I mean, you mentioned insurance earlier, like, do you have to have, um, what else do you have to have?
0: So technically, and I'm sure it can vary. There's like nothing you really have to have. I've done a lot of research. Technically, I don't think anyone wants to hear this, but I think I could be cooking it all out of my home. And I know there are people who do that because I'm not regulated as a caterer. I'm a personal chef. So it's considered a service industry. So because I'm buying products and then going to my customer's home and preparing them there, that kind of gets around that. I, and I, there's no uh, professional organization you have to be a member of. You can join the Personal Chefs Association or something. But a lot of that is just um, for marketing purposes. Um, so I'm an LLC. Uh, I have my Serve Safe certificate, which I've had consistently since 1994, um, and I have liability insurance with a decent amount of coverage and that's all I really need to operate.
1: Huh? I mean, I've heard stories of, um, of people getting, uh, getting into jams, like for, for selling grab and go food or like packaged food. Uh, this is totally different. So you're providing a service that, that, that makes food.
0: Yeah. And it's in your home. If I were to advertise on Facebook that come to my house and you can pick up, you know, a tortilla, then the board of health is going to come. And shut you down for that. But if I'm being hired to come into your home, it's a me and you relationship. You and I have a contract that I'm going to come to your house and cook dinner for you and your spouse this evening. That has nothing to do with Department of Health. And if I go to the store and buy food and take it to your home and then prepare it in your home, cool. And if you get sick, then you personally come after me and my insurance has to deal with that. But it's not related to Department of Health or anything like that.
1: Huh. Uh, Bartenders take note how do you acquire your customers do they do, Is it all, um, inbound or do you advertise or is it Both. just a website?
0: No. Yeah. Um, I don't do, I do some paid Facebook and Instagram marketing, but for me, and this is one of my big secrets here, not not a secret. I talk about it all the time, actually. Um, so much of my business now is coming from Airbnbs, um, and like experiential kind of out of the way ones. So, you know, we're in Virginia wine country out here, and all these people bought these really cool farmhouses out there and they are advertising you know retreat getaways so you have a bachelorette party it's a dozen girls they come for the weekend to stay in this cabin and they rent a limo and go wine tasting all day and then they come back to the house which is kind of in the middle of nowhere they're a little tipsy and they don't want to go out so they want to hire a chef to come in and cook for them so i started to see a year and a half ago a lot of business coming directly from the customer so they would book And then they would have to, on their own, search for a chef. Once I realized that that was a flow of good business for me, I started reaching out to all those Airbnbs directly myself and kind of giving them my pitch. And especially if I was there. So if I came and did a party at an Airbnb, I would take tons of photos while I was there. I would post it on my Instagram and I would tag the business that I'm at Narnia Airbnb in Percival, Virginia. Then the owner sees that I'm there. They also know that I'm helping advertise for them. And then I send them a DM and say, hey, I was here on Saturday cooking for the girls. This is a little bit about me. I would love if when people booked with you, you gave them my info and gave me first crack at whether or not they needed a chef. And I've been doing that for a year and a half. And that almost alone is enough to keep my business afloat. I've built relationships with about 40 Airbnbs within my travel radius and kind of have like a first refusal um verbal agreement with them that when someone needs a chef, they'd contact me.
1: Okay. That is what's known as incremental business. Also straight up fucking hustling. That is awesome. Yeah.
0: Like I'll spend four hours on the Airbnb website, just looking at places that kind of meet the aesthetic and the vibe I'm going for, going for high-end places. Um, And those are people who have money to spend a little bit and um, you get a bigger party. You know, I like doing twos, but the money's at where you get to the like eight to twelves and the kind of people who are going to rent a $2,000 a night, You know, place have the $200 a person for dinner.
1: Um, Just going back to that, um, I think it's so wise and so smart that you're like, listen, I'm not going to do this $30 plate nonsense. Um, This is the service I provide, it's worth it. Um, You know, you need to have money to engage me. Uh, And I think that that's so smart because, um, you know, the people who can afford to have a beautiful dining experience typically are probably going to be hassling you a little bit less about minutiae that doesn't really matter. Definitely. You know, if you're targeting just a higher end clientele, then leave it. You know, leave the rest of the market for the teenagers, because the the business that you're gonna get is high quality, and that's and you need time off anyways. Like, you want to work all the time, you want to work 24 hours a day. Fine, charge 30 bucks a plate. But
0: yeah, and positioning yourself as a high end experience. I there's you know there are people who have front row seats to the super bowl or you will spend 500 dollars on a concert ticket like the market's there for high-end uh, experiences and those are the people i wanted to target
1: that's that's awesome that's really smart uh I, I didn't learn this lesson until a little bit later on in my career and i don't undersell yourself um you know <laughs> like, like swing for the fences and, and 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 have a number in mind i mean and be prepared to say no
0: and even one-offs, you know, I, when I was first starting out, someone would say, can you do one for 60? And it's like, well, I'm already not working on Thursday, so I'll do it. But then you're always going to be the cheap guy. They're going to tell their friends that it was $60 ahead you know, and it's hard to say like, well, I only did it because I needed, you know, a couple bucks. And I've had that where then, you know, they pass their name on to someone and you tell them it's a hundred and they're like, oh, that was more than I, I think you charged my friend, you know, and then it's a weird conversation. Um, and it's just not worth it. And it, gets to be really challenging so
1: yeah and it's probably more worth it to stay home with your twins
0: definitely i mean There's there's so much marketing, as you know, having your own business, and I would rather take the day off and spend eight to 12 hours grinding on the internet doing marketing than just like keeping my head above water and I profited like $30 at the end of the day and it didn't move the needle at all. And that's not even a good lead gen because I'm not going to get the business I want from that cheap customer. So yeah, take the day, like that's something I had to learn, like take the day off and spend that time working on your marketing or your plan or whatever it is you need to do. Or your family. I'd rather spend a Saturday with my family than make a thirty dollars profit.
1: Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, so, how much of your time would you say you spend working in the business versus on the business?
0: Mm, I'm, uh, I'm probably like fifty fifty, actually. Um, depending, I mean, I have weeks where I have five events, so it's a little less, and then I sometimes have a week where I have like one event, which sucks. But you know, you just figure that it all comes out in the wash. And this is just a week to hustle and get some stuff
1: done. Do you have, are you the only employee or do you have other people that work with you?
0: Yeah. So, um, I'm the only employee is the short answer. So chefs without restaurants is actually an organization I've started to help other food entrepreneurs build and grow their business all for free. There's no membership or anything like that. And we do a lot of gig sharing. Um, and the podcast grew out of that, but it's been a two year organization I've had. So the nice thing about that is When I have a party of 15, that's a little more than I can handle. So I go into our private Facebook group that I started and I'll just say, who wants to come make $300 on Friday, you know, July 8th. Um, All I need you for is like five hours at a house. So we're actually, a lot of us are using the group to just find contractors on a one-on-one basis. So a lot during Christmas season, as I had bigger parties, I would just, you know, DM someone an address and say, you know, meet me there at five and you'll probably be done around 10 and I'll give you like three hundred dollars. I pay like 40 to 60 dollars an hour for my help because I really need them. I get paid really well and, you know, I want to help someone else who's kind of in my. boat. Yeah,
1: I mean, that's competitive for um, an experienced susha that's good money on the day of an event what's your day like what do you do so you don't do any long lead prep you bring all your equipment China
0: yeah I mean it's really it is pulling pulling stuff together like packing and stuff um I I have a decent commute you know where I live is not actually where my market is so DC traffic like it could take me two two and a half hours to get there for a dinner so I really have to plan on that too like if if you want dinner at six I'd like to be at your house between four and four thirty. So that means I probably have to leave my house by two thirty at the latest to deal with like the DC traffic. So really my day I've lost like I need to be packed and out of the, the house or if I'm using the commercial kitchen out by like two, two thirty. So I really don't have that much during a day. So it's the days leading up of like getting all the china pulled, getting things done, ironing my napkins, um, any last minute like Things stopping at the grocery store, you know, packing the cooler with ice and then stopping at a store on the way out of town and grabbing whatever I need. Um, yeah, so it's organization. Do
1: you use any kind of documents for organization? Do you use like a banquet event order or do you use like, um, software for that? Or how do you plan your events?
0: So I, have a, like I made an Excel poll sheet, which is, it grew out of the catering company I worked for. my wife actually used to be a chef and we worked at the same catering company for a brief period of time together. And she helped me with that. So, you know, it has everything from snack plates, salad plates, entree plates, all the way down. And I just uh, print that off and then scribble the menu like in the margin just to remind me of what I need. And I go item by item that, you know, okay, it's six people. And the first thing is like pimento cheese. So I need like six snack plates for that and like a bowl and a serving spoon and then like move to the salad. It's like I need six salad plates and six salad forks. Um, So that takes a little time to, to pull a list. So you don't forget anything. And, you know, I'm going to a customer's home for the most part. And if God forbid, I forgot a fork or something, I can probably make do, but I just like to bring everything on my own.
1: I would imagine that's also a benefit of, of having a higher end clientele is that um, they're not so fussy about that kind of stuff.
0: Yeah. Sometimes they want me to use their stuff because it's special China and I can do that. The challenge is, is I always want to leave you a clean kitchen and no work. So then I have to stay and clean. Like I would rather come home and take off my chef coat and put on some music and just clean at my leisure than have to stay at your house another hour, uh, and hand wash your fine china.
1: Yeah, no, that's, that's kind of, kind of an interesting thing. Like, like, would you charge more if they wanted to use their own stuff?
0: No, because I, I, you know, that's why I charge. What I charge is to cover all that incidental stuff. Um, I was just telling someone yesterday, I don't cost my food, my recipes or menus, and people are appalled, especially since I came from very high, um, Volume businesses where I had to know those numbers, but when I play at the high end, you know, I have crab cakes, right? If you manage your proteins, like crab is twenty, say twenty dollars a pound, right? I don't need to cost out the mayonnaise, the teaspoon of Old Bay, the lemon juice. I'm charging a hundred to two hundred dollars a dinner, like as long as I know that my crab is twenty dollars a pound and I get four crab cakes out of a pound, that's a five dollar center of the plate cost. It's realistically like five. 30. But that 30 cents doesn't matter when I'm at that high end. So I've built in enough of a buffer that whether it be a time issue, or a food cost issue that I still have covered my costs.
1: Is there an economy of scale with the dishes? Like do you take things home with you? And does that inform the dishes that you offer your guests?
0: Yeah, so um, there's a whole bunch of things. So I've changed my business model a little bit where my guests don't get to choose every course like I used to sell a five course menu or a six course menu. And I gave you the flexibility to order everything. Um, Now I propose like a four course menu and I'm charging the same and nobody's ever said, wow, that's a lot for a four course. And then I show up with two bonus courses. So if I had, let's say two days in a row, um, could that bonus course be the same? Could I make a big batch of pimento cheese and use it for both days and just kind of giving myself a little out um, to do things like that. And then being a little more vague with my menu, whereas I used to want to be fancy and mention every single ingredient and say, you know, this one's a sherry vinaigrette. But then the next day I have one that's an apple cider vinaigrette. It's like, no, just say vinaigrette. And then I can make a batch and can I use it in three different, um, recipes, you know, or three different events, things like that.
1: Does your uh, offering change throughout the year or thematically?
0: Yeah. So I built four, seasonal menus and a lot of the things go year round but i have a fall winter spring summer menu and there, are i don't know something crazy like probably 800 offerings in there as my core menu um broken down a category of like salad and soup and everything and then i send my customers a questionnaire very basic one to ten how adventurous are you how much spice do you like foods and cuisines you love foods and cuisines you hate Uh, dietary restrictions, and are you okay with the use of alcohol? And they send that back to me. And then I look at the menu and I start eliminating. Okay, they don't like Thai food, so anything that's Thai comes off. They have a gluten allergy. Anything with gluten comes off. And then I have still a very large list. And then I pare it down to things that maybe I feel like making. Um, and then send them a menu proposal on that.
1: The parallel that I, that I keep drawing, and I know that this is terrible, but it's like, I, I, I my, one of my guilty pleasures is the show below deck uh-huh. and, I, and I see awful people that come on these, these cruises. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, you see the chef in the galley, like who's like bending over backwards to accommodate these really terrible people. Um, and that's kind of what I have in my mind. It, it just seems like, like even with the menu and the set menu and the, and the, the, the Thematic and seasonal menus that you put together, there still has to be curveballs. I mean, there still has to be something that, like, the water doesn't get hot enough. The, the, the temperature in the oven is, isn't even.
0: Yeah. I mean, how
1: do you how do you deal with that? Is that just experience?
0: Uh, it's experience. You know, the I don't need to see your kitchen ahead of time, but I do ask how many ovens you have. Because that's the one thing, you know, I did an event the other night and they picked a menu they wanted, but they wanted, you know, a roasted potato. And I like to do that high around the 425 range and roasted Brussels sprouts. So that takes the two shelves they have. But then they also wanted like a fish that I normally do in the oven. And then their dessert was like a pear crisp that takes like 40 minutes at like 350. So it's this juggling act of like, put the potatoes in, get them 90% of the way done, pull them out, put them on the counter, cover them with foil, throw the crisp in, drop the oven down. Get 40 minutes, you know. Get 20 minutes in, pull it out, put them on the stove, throw the potatoes back in, and just kind of figuring that stuff out is where it gets kind of challenging.
1: Do you ever ask them for pictures of like to see how much counter space they have or anything? Because I mean, like, I'm just trying to figure out how how does one mes for this.
0: Yeah, counter space isn't really an issue. Most people know um, that I'm coming and I'm going to need some counter space. the Airbnbs are actually the worst for that, though, because people are usually coming for, like, a long weekend, and they put everything on the counters. Like, if it's your home, everything's in the pantry. But usually when I get to an Airbnb for the weekend. The counter is just sprawled out with, like, bags of apples and bags of chips and, like, rolls for their burgers tomorrow. Um, and that's the one time where I'm kind of like, oh, I'm going to need a little space to work here. Do you also serve
1: cocktails at your events?
0: Uh, I – so what I – yeah, so I will – create for you i will pour but i don't provide like and that's a great area like with the personal chef thing i know a lot of people who do make cocktails and bring i don't want to get in the habit of like purchasing alcohol dealing with that you know i'm tip certified but i would just rather say like sure if you want a manhattan like yeah this is you know the things i think you should have and i'll mix them for you but also by myself that gets a little hard so that is where I will maybe charge more if you really want like full beverage service or something because I can't be prepping a seven-course dinner for 10 people and mixing cocktails.
1: <laughs> no doubt. Yeah, it seems like plenty by itself. So do you have any aspirations to scale your business? I mean, do you have any do – do you see the business model changing at all?
0: Uh, no. No. <laughs> No. And that's kind of why I built Chefs Without Restaurants, because I think that's a scalable business. Like long term, I think that's actually going to be my business. And um, seeing a shift there into like uh, generating revenue through consulting Um, you know, doing things like building websites for people. So I'm already in the process of looking at that. I'm doing what I'm doing because I love cooking. And as you grow, you do less of that. You know, when I was working at Sodexo, I had 125 employees. I was overseeing five venues. I had two chefs to cuisine, four sous chefs and like a million workers. And then I spent most of my day in my office doing phone calls, you know, budgeting, P&L's, hiring, firing, reviews. Like I hate that stuff. That's not why I got in the food business. If I wanted to push pencils, I'd become an accountant and make more money. Like I want to cook every day and when you're going a month without literally cooking food, that sucks. So I'm like I want to get back in the trenches and be cooking every day. So how can I go um, cook every day and make a living at it. Cause you know, I said to my boss one time, like, oh, I'd love to be cooking more. She's like, well, I'll cut your pay $40,000 and you can do that. Ha ha. And it's like, no, I'm serious. Like I want to be cooking more. And I just didn't see a way. So I think if you scale, then it's back to me, um, planning menus, managing menus and sending people out to do it without me. And that's not what I want to be doing. Um, so building the chefs without restaurants as a scalable business model, I think makes more sense to me. Oh, and interestingly, listening to your podcast, you talk about social bee, right? Yeah, y- you use that, don't you? Yeah, I know Avi, who like created that. Oh, really? Um, it's really fun. He actually, I were in a business group on Facebook, and he was my accountability partner. So like, as he was like building the thing going through, we were like checking in with each other on each other's progress. So I thought that was really interesting. Like, I didn't know how um, big it was going to get and how many people were going to be using it. But like, four years ago, we were in this like Facebook kind of like business mastermind class and they partnered us with like random people around the world. And uh, yeah, Avi was my partner for that.
1: Um, it's, I highly recommend it. It's, uh, it allows you to put different content in different buckets and then schedule when that content deploys. Um, and, uh, and you can put RSS feeds into it. And so you can like, anytime I publish a podcast, it automatically publishes to my, my content bucket. And then that strategically drip feeds, uh, on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, link, LinkedIn, um, throughout yeah. and different parts of the day, different days of the week, et cetera.
0: I still manually push all that. I don't know. I just, uh, I know one of my downfalls is uh, I'm a little ADHD, undiagnosed, unmedicated, and I like am all over the place a little bit and I don't do well with schedules. I don't do well with calendars. I guess I'm probably the kind of person who needs it. Um, But also um, putting out relevant content on the platforms contextually for that platform. And I think a lot of people post a photo to Instagram and then they just share to Twitter and it doesn't convert because they didn't natively post it. The format looks terrible, you know, and the easiest way for me to get around that is just take a photo and put it into Canva and do three different sizes on it and post it individually on the platform that I'm on. That's what I've done. And I know there's ways to still automate that but i just don't
1: yeah Uh, see this is where this is where i wish people would be like okay you want to get in business for yourself you have to do stuff like you can't just do the thing that it (laughs) is that you do you have to do more than that and nobody's going to teach you how to do it you have to kind of figure it out like you can listen to these podcasts you can watch youtube videos you can read articles um but you have to do it and you have to commit to it Uh, it's not enough to do what it is that you do
0: (laughs) well yeah it's like the, the networking thing i was saying like yeah, I might spend five hours on Twitter today having conversations with people. Like, that's just, it, it's good for whatever. You know, people say they don't get it. And then they say, how were you in a magazine? Mm. I went on Twitter and I found, like, the editor-in-chief of every culinary food and beverage magazine and followed them and started having conversations. Like, real conversations. And that took years. Like, <laughs> you know, and people don't want to hear that that's what it takes and that it might not work out. Like, um. Yeah. One of the magazines I was in, like I posted something and Kat Kinsman saw it and she retweeted it to like her million followers. It's like, well, she only reposted because we had been engaging for like three years online. And also if she had logged on an hour later, she wouldn't have seen that. So it's also timing, you know?
1: Oh my God. Twitter. Uh, it's like They say, that, and, they say that the lifespan of a tweet is like 18 minutes.
0: I know. It, like, And I have a soft spot uh, for that because that's how I built my whole business was on Twitter essentially. And just like, people showing me love and um yeah helping me grow really quickly but it comes from a genuine place of like engaging with people right like today the Washingtonian magazine released like their best 100 restaurants it's like going on there and like personally congratulating the chef of every one of those restaurants that I know like that takes time but you know and it's also like the good thing to do like I love Ryan at Bresca and I'm gonna say hey congrats you were the number seven spot cool like that might not get me business, but long tail, I build a relationship with him by doing things Mm -hmm. like that, you know?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I I think what you're doing is very cool. I think it's very, um, future relevant. Um, and, and I really appreciate you taking the time to, to talk to me about it. The world is changing and people are not going to be going to restaurants the way we understand it now. Forever. This kind of service offering is coming up and um, there's going to be a lot more of this in the future as we see seamless and Grubhub and Uber Eats and take people out of restaurants. So keep that in mind, especially bartenders. This is a segment that I believe is going to expand greatly and they're going to need cocktails. So I hope you got a lot out of this interview with Chef Chris Speer. Uh, I know I did. It's very interesting to see how he hustles as a one-man show. Be sure to check out the show notes for a summary of the show and links to any of the products and references that we talked about. I'd like to keep these shows as short as possible and as dense as possible. This one ran a little bit long. But if you have any thoughts, questions, or ideas, please be sure to reach out to me at Jason Luttrell on Twitter and Instagram or search for Jason Luttrell on Facebook and LinkedIn. If you got anything out of our time together, you can thank me by simply sharing this with another person. If you love the show, please hit the subscribe button, leave a review, rating, or comment on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. You can find Chef Chris Speer at Perfect Little Bites on Instagram and Twitter, www.perfectlittlebites.com, or you can check out his podcast at Chefs Without Restaurants anywhere you get your podcasts.
0: Thanks for listening to the Chefs Without Restaurants podcast. And if you're interested in being a guest on the show or sponsoring a show, please let us know. We can be reached at chefswithoutrestaurants at gmail.com. Thanks so much.